السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد Brothers and sisters in Islam welcome to another live broadcast this week talking about the race riots in America and the race the race undercurrent um, that has spilled over to become an overcurrent. Um, I want to talk about a few issues today um, in relation to all of that. Um, let's just uh, let's just um, set the scene for the moment. Um, what we're all witnessing um, is one of is a moment that is rooted deeply in a set of historical phenomena. Uh, that has been going on um, for centuries. It did not, you know, America did not erupt because one individual was brutally killed uh, by police and law enforcement. Um, riots did not erupt because of the uh, the deliverance of one court judgment. In other cases, um, America did not erupt because. Um, a particular group of right-wing thugs set upon unarmed black neighborhoods. Um, the reality of racism in America is that it is deeply historical, um, fundamentally entrenched um, in what makes up America and, of course, what America has exported to the world. Um, this is an existential fight uh, for blacks in America. Um, and we need to understand it on this level. Um, it is not um, a conversation, uh, a middle-class conversation about um, bettering our condition, um, improving our world. Um, this is a matter of life and death. Um, black bodies, black minds, black communities um, are assaulted every single day, fatally. Um, broken homes, broken communities, incarcerations, uh, the war on drugs. Um, in any any way you seek to describe it today, from its historical roots of the slave trade um, to um, forced labor camps on, on American farms um, or its modern-day phenomena like police brutality um, that we all witness, this is a matter of life and death and needs to be understood um, with the significance that it deserves. So from this point, um, let's take a moment to, uh, to explore the, the reality of what racism represents. You don't pick up a whole group of people from one side of the world, um, force them into death traps, um, and sail them across the Atlantic um, th- with, you know, throw half of their bodies overboard along the way, um, force them into prison camps, um, unless you view them with such contempt, such inhumanity, um, that you're willing uh, to do with them as if they are not human beings, less than human beings, and in fact, um, less than most other creations. We know in this country, for instance, that... um, the Australian government uh, prioritised the counting of um, flora and fauna 
um, before it prioritised the counting of um, in the Indigenous population, um, that it recognised um, the, the existence of flora and fauna um, before it recognised the humanity of uh, the Indigenous population. And so too, um, in America, um, black people to this day are killed with absolute impunity um, and any semblance of justice that we witness from time to time is merely symbolic. Um, there has been devastation uh, wreaked across black communities, across black homes, um, across across um, the black world um, that America is directly responsible for. And I want to stress this point because I want us all to recognise um, who we're dealing with. Um, it's one thing to recognise another as lesser than you, um, but it's another thing to actively seek out the oppression of that person or that community. And it's something entirely more um, to systemise that oppression, um, resulting in what cannot be described except as genocide. Um, this is the fight of their lives. And when something is a matter of life and death, um, the one thing you don't do, and I want to say this at the very beginning, you do not question or judge how that person seeks to preserve their life. And let me give you a very small analogy. If I talk to, um, to youth today um, in the context of self-defense, and I say if your life is genuinely threatened, your safety is at risk, then you do whatever possible, whatever you can uh, to safeguard yourself, to preserve your life. There are no rules here. Um, if someone is trying to uh, assault you, then you respond in whatever way possible um, that ensures your safety, um, even if it is fatal. It's your life or their life. Um, and no one can come to that person um, whose life is being threatened, whose safety is being threatened, and question the efficacy um, and, and the morality of how they sought to protect themselves. Not even a footnote. And everything we're witnessing, despite the existence of agent provocateurs, and we know America has a very long history of this, of uh, deliberately trying to discredit populist movements, um, despite all of this, even if we accept at face value, for argument's sake, um, that black people are rioting and supporters of black people are rioting and looting and God knows what. This can never be the discussion right now. And if this is your point of discussion, if this question is raised today and this point in time, then know, of course, that you are part of uh, the oppression of racialized black people. That needs to be stated very clearly. We should know that more than anyone um, as Muslims, um, given our experiences in the last two decades um, with the war on terror. There are certain facts we need to recognize. Racism in America is historical. It did not start recently. It did not start even a century ago. It started with the introduction of the slave trade. Um, Racism in America is malleable, meaning the forms by which race, the forms of which racism takes change over time. Sometimes it's the in-your-face variety. Other times it's more subtle. Sometimes it's internalized. It takes many forms, but ultimately 
it changes form because it seeks to preserve a status quo when its reality starts to become recognized and confronted. And so it needs to change in order to survive. And as a side note, um, because racism exists in many forms and on many levels, um, we need to be conscious, of course, of our particular contribution to racism. And this needs to be said. It's not the topic of today's conversation, um, and it should be um, an issue that will be addressed specifically because it is important. But we should not be ignorant of the fact um, that in many ways, whether we recognize it or don't, um, we can be complicit in the racialization of black people. Um, racism is also structural. It's not just a matter of people who hold um, negative thoughts about you. It's not about individual um, positions. It's not the fact that Trump um, is a racist twat. It's not about um, even right-wing groups. Um, it's not about the overt or the covert. Um, you don't persist with um, deadly racism for 400 years unless you build institutions that, one, reproduce racist or racial structures, reinforce those very racial structures, and, of course, absolve those who are engaged in this racial oppression. Um, and so what we're fighting is not just bad attitudes – what we're fighting is a comprehensive set of systems and institutions built around um, underlying racial attitudes, um, ideology, um, that needs to be confronted. Um, and all of a sudden, um, we realize the magnitude of what's in front of us, that this rage that we witness, rightfully witness, um, is a testament to what blacks have experienced in America for centuries. Um, and the fact that it's persisted means it's become, it has always been institutionalized, consistently refined, um, bettered, improved, um, made more subtle, um, but when needed, becomes overt. Um, when muscles need to be flexed and hierarchies need to be reordered, um, muscles, you know, racism becomes um, a lot more overt in the way that we're all witnessing. Uh, more frequently. There is another element. Racism in America is also reproductive, meaning it does not... So we're not talking about a set of historical phenomena. Uh, you know, the, the fact that racism is structural means that these institutions um, define for us all the distribution of power in America, the distribution of wealth in America... Um, and the distribution of the roles played by the various citizens in America. And this is important to understand. It's about reproducing those racial hierarchies such that it entrenches the status quo. And the status quo was always intimately tied with what, um, however you seek to describe it, white privilege, class privilege, uh, male privilege, um, in the way that it's been experienced in America and more broadly in Europe and our experiences with colonialism outside of those two places. But there's a certain recognition that needs to be um, um, accepted. If racism is inherently structural and it is fundamentally a problem then naturally the response to that can only be structural. 
if what we're confronting is not just poor attitudes or a, 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 a whole series of bad eggs, for instance, where we individualize the issue, if we're confronting systems and institutions, then our response needs to be naturally on the same level, meaning you don't reform institutions by reforming individuals. You can have very well-intentioned individuals who seek to change matters from within and the experience of um, you know, various popular movements historically in America are a testament to this. And as Muslims, we would understand this very well too. Um, various initiatives aimed at seeking reform of society through existing political paradigms ultimately result in the perpetuation or the entrenchment of status quo. But more than that, uh, we become absorbed in the very system we're seeking to confront. This is very important for us to understand. If racism is structural, then you have to understand that the fight for us is against the system. We need to understand that the system is built upon unchecked violence. But we also need to understand the state is consistently willing to exercise that violence. And if, it's, if this is the reality of America today and historically, um, then immediately uh, we need to acknowledge that uh, reforming such a system is nothing but fantasy. Um, improving this system is nothing but fantasy. When it, from its very inception, um, it was the epitome of um, unprecedented violence, um, slavery, genocide, what it did to the indigenous population in America, um, what it did to blacks from Africa, um, and what it did its experiences in Latin America, and of course what we all witness today post-World War II, um, the sort of world it created when it enjoyed um, global dominance. If that's what we're dealing with, then there needs to be an immediate recognition um, that this system is inherently built in this way to perpetuate those um, forms of oppression which have existed since the time of its inception. So in other words, we need to be very clear about our rejection of a set of pragmatic politics, the idea of changing the system from within. Um, systems of oppression do not respond to arguments around morality. Um, you're dealing with people, um, and more broadly and more importantly, dealing with institutions that have no hesitation whatsoever uh, to enact policies of genocide. Um, we're dealing with systems and institutions that have no hesitation in um, continually brutalizing, um, in many cases fatally, entire communities. We're dealing with systems and institutions that have no hesitation in exporting this oppression uh, globally to invade countries, destroy its infrastructure, um, kill its people, impoverish the rest. Um, this is what we're confronting. And the idea that you can um, engage these people and these institutions to better itself um, belies logic 
because it defies the fact that the problem is the institution. The problem is the ideology that underpins those institutions. The problem is America. And so the notion of pragmatism, of reforming from within, should be radically dismissed for the fantasy that it is. But acknowledging that comes at a cost. It drastically alters the political paradigms in which you accept to function. Um, it drastically alters the objective of your political engagement. You know, if we're concerned about the oppression of racial minorities in America, blacks or otherwise, despite the proportionality in relation to black communities, then we need to recognize the actual fight that we're seeking to engage. And there should be no um, doubt about this matter. What we need to understand is that racism rests upon three fundamental pillars um, that exist in the modern world. Racism is intimately tied to the existence of modern nation states. That's the first thing we need to understand. It's also intimately tied to the existence of capitalism the way we know it today and historically. And it's intimately tied to the institutions that are born out of those two things. Now, let's pull this apart very briefly. The idea of modern nation states is that there's a certain way we look at ourselves um, and build our identity around. Um, and, and the concept of race itself, while it's not the topic of a conversation today, but the concept of race is a very modern one, born around the same time to serve um, to serve the same purpose of modern statehood, that it was a particular f way of looking at ourselves, and it is inherently exclusionary. Um, race is an invented concept, um, not to be you know confused with ethnicity and and things that we traditionally understand with differences amongst people, our food, our colors, um, and things like that. But it's a particular political paradigm that differentiates one group of people um, with another, but it's inherently hierarchical, meaning it's, it's, it's entrenched in notions of good versus evil, uh, right versus wrong, um, privileged and underprivileged, um, uh, enlightened and backward, and, and, and many other um, categories of binaries. Um, and to attach ourselves to this racial identity, it necessitates that we look upon others um, as the opposite of us for the purpose of distinction. Um, and we, we, we entertain this conversation much in this country when we talk about Australian identity and always the conclusion is no one can genuinely describe what being Australian means. But what we love to do is to describe what is un-Australian. Um, and racial identity is fundamentally built in this way. So you can appreciate that not only is it going to be divisive, because it separates us into artificial notions of identity. Um, it's going to be divisive because it establishes hierarchies of superiority and inferiority. Um, and if we are all a product of modern statehood, which we are today, then know, of course, that we are going to internalize, um, if we're not conscious of this point, the very, um, the very problematic views that underpin 
the racism that we are supposedly opposed to in America. This needs to be understood very clearly. And what I'm saying essentially is if you are genuine about confronting racism um, as it exists today, you cannot do this unless you are genuinely seeking to confront modern statehood. And you cannot destroy racism today unless you are actively seeking to destroy modern statehood, meaning invent and create a new way, present a new way of looking at ourselves and looking at the relationships between ourselves and others and building political paradigms on that new basis. Capitalism, of course, so in this sense, the nation state provides the ideological underpinnings of racism. Capitalism, of course, provides the muscle to enact racist policies in pursuit of profit. Um, and when the two are tied together, um, you possess the ability uh, to build institutions like courts, like police, like the army, like the education, like many other things. You possess the ability and the power to build the institutions that will reproduce um, the racial structures in society. And that's what we witness in America and, of course, all over the world, given our experiences with colonialism, a world of haves and have-nots, a world of civilized and uncivilized um, in the Muslim context, uh, modern or barbaric, um, and categories like that. And so confronting racism means we confront by necessity these three things. And if we're not actively seeking um, the confrontation with the nation state, with capitalism, and with the institutions that are born um, as a result of these two things, then know that our, our, uh, ra- our anti-racist activism, um, you know, despite our best intentions, um, is going to be me sloganeering. But worse than that, we will fail to recognize the fact that we will ultimately be absorbed by the very system we're seeking to oppose oppose because we are not um, chipping away at its core. So if we want only to introduce more friendly laws, more equitable laws, um, provide for for, racialized communities more opportunities and things like that, these demands um, can and always have been accommodated to maintain the, the image of um, anti-racism and equality. Um, but we're missing the forest from the trees if we do that. And we need to genuinely ponder over this point very deeply because this is not an intellectual exercise. This is a matter of life and death. Um, and whilst we're talking about the black experience in America today, um, these arguments apply equally um, to all, um, let's say, victims of um, colonialism around the world, um, inside uh, Europe and America and outside of it. We need, therefore, a radical politics um, both ideologically and politically, where we start to uh, construct new binaries, 
Right? The world, for instance, is entrenched because of state modern statehood, because of capitalism, um, around binaries of, of race, of class, of gender, etc. Um, and this is inherently problematic because these are all categories um, that we impose ourselves. And when I say ourselves, I mean in the absence of divine revelation, um, whatever we come up with as human beings ultimately um, is not going to serve um, the purpose of all of us. It's not going to serve a, a utopian or altruistic um, view of the world. And that's just the reality of our existence. Um, when push comes to shove, we will fundamentally um, look after our own, however we define our own. And so the issue for us really is to confront the binaries that have been imposed over us that ultimately um, entrench uh, the racialization of black communities in America and racialization of communities outside of America, entire countries, in fact, entire peoples. Uh, we need to start looking at things differently. There needs to be a certain recognition about our reality as human beings, which essentially means the fact that we've been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, these categories have to tr transcend all human beings. You know, the issue, for instance, of patriarchy is not to introduce a matriarchal world. As an example, the issue of uh, class divisions amongst us is not to, um, you know, uh, demand, is not to demand a, a, a classless world, a world without class. Um, you know, our, our, our reaction to these things doesn't necessarily rely in its opposite. We need a new way of thinking here. And this is important because it's about looking at the problem fundamentally different. So if there are existing hierarchies around existing binaries and those hierarchies and those binaries have created systems of oppression on many levels, whether it's around race or gender or class or, or, or privilege and things like that, then naturally our response to that should be fundamentally to seek out new binaries and the most important of that is to demand a god-centered world this is important to understand and this is an important proposition because ultimately whatever despite our best intentions whatever we imagine however we envision the world if it's us who determine it us as in human beings determine it it is going to be inherently flawed because mankind is inherently flawed Despite our best intentions, and I want to stress this, despite our best intentions, the reality of our, of our existence, the reality of our history, of the history of, of mankind, is that this will always be a constant until mankind um, is kept in check. And this cannot happen through other men or women, through other mankind. This has to happen through the one who is deserving of it, and the only one that is capable of it, which of course is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From that we need to build new institutions that reflect those new binaries and we need to redistribute wealth and power accordingly. Now I say that by just putting it out there, but these I know these are not small statements. I'm, I'm asking for a radical review of how we look at ourselves, how we look at each other, 
and the relationships that are born out of that, how we seek to address those relationships um, and the institutions that we need to build to reflect that. Um, sounds utopian, sounds very idealistic um, and there are, very, uh, there are many counter arguments in response to that. Many people will rightly say there have been many instances in, in history where a God-centered world has done much wrong, to put it lightly. And there is no doubt about that. Uh, Muslim and non-Muslim. Um, not that it can be compared, but there is no point denying the fact that in and of itself, um, you know, it is not a guarantee um, of a utopian world, a world full of complete justice um, in principle. In reality, um, a God-centered world is incomparable to the world that we've become, we've grown accustomed to. And I think it's important now to introduce more, more directly Islam into this conversation. Um, and I want to make a couple of things clear. The first is uh, racism from an Islamic perspective is just one of many scourges we need to confront. And it's important to understand that because if someone comes to me and says, the world as we know it is a racialized one, um, and the experience of racism as such um, is so-and-so, and therefore we should be opposed to that, the question naturally would be, um, why should I be? In principle. In other words, what moral framework are we leaning to in order to develop our positions in res in relation to these things, um, you know, outside of Islam, what moral framework can we refer to that provides a a a, a, lev a morality in which we can make judgments over these things? That's an important question, because what it means is, as Muslims, we need to look at all of these things through an exclusively Islamic lens. Um, it's an issue of how we seek to frame the discussion, how we seek to frame the issue. It's not an issue of justice versus injustice. That's not our, that's not our framing as Muslims. Because for us, justice is what is Islamic, and injustice is what is not Islamic, what opposes, what is, what opposes Islam. Um, for us, the issue is iman and kufr, halal and haram. And what is good Islamically is what we will determine, what we'll champion as good. And what is bad Islamically is what we'll champion as bad and what we'll oppose and confront. Um, and it's important to understand that um, because it defines for us what it is we actually should be pursuing. It defines for us what our politics is all about, what our activism is all about, and ultimately what the end game is. And I cannot stress that enough. But from the angle of um, racism in America, I want to make two quick points. First is, um, Islam is at the heart of the black struggle. Um, and seeking to draw a demarcation between the two is, is not just wrong, but deeply offensive uh, to the Muslims who were an integral part of the slave trade. Um, an integral part... Um, to the, to campaigns um, 
to preserve their blackness, which which was ultimately synonymous with their pres- you know, their campaigns to preserve Islam. Um, and the and the black Muslim struggle is the black struggle, and vice versa. Um, the idea of self determination the idea of uh, I- you know, identity preservation, the idea of holding on to our Islam, um, is so central um, to black struggles in America that it would be offensive um, to seek to draw a dichotomy between the two or a demarcation between the two. Many of the great um, Islam, uh, black personalities in the past and today uh, are Muslim. And this is only an issue that emerges, this, this, this uh, demarcation is an issue that only emerges um, in non-black Muslim communities where we impose this view, um, which ultimately um, does a disservice to the history of blacks, Muslim and non-Muslims, in America. That's the first point. The second point is the Muslim world is fundamentally suffering from the same systemic forces that black Americans uh, um, are suffering. Um, Whilst this is a conversation in itself, we need to recognize the systems of oppression don't don't recognize geography, uh, let alone um, political borders. So our struggle ultimately is a struggle of all oppressed people. Um, and that's important to understand. And it's important to understand because our fight as Muslims in the Muslim world and beyond is in fact an example for all oppressed people. And we can give numerous examples of that in terms of courage, determination, perseverance, um, longevity. Um, Our efforts to rid ourselves of um, the colonial architecture imposed upon us in the Muslim world um, is an example for all oppressed people that are subject to the same systemic forces inside America, inside Europe, and outside of both. That's the first point. Our fight is the fight for all oppressed people. And we'll lead by example. Um, we can give numerous instances of that. Um, our methods, how we engage in this fight, will similarly be an example for all oppressed people. This is really important to understand. Our struggle, fundamentally as Muslims, is going to be organic. And that means it's going to be at all levels of society, and it's going to be from the ground up, not top down. Right? We don't... You know, Islam is not um, the sole preserve of particular classes of Muslims or particular races of Muslims or particular genders of Muslims. Um, Islam is for all of humanity. And every Muslim recognizes this point, should recognize this point. Um, And so the change that we are seeking will happen and is happening on every level of society, from the individual um, to the institutions, um, and to those embedded in the institutions, to those who have power, don't have power, those who have wealth and don't have wealth, um, those who enjoy privilege or don't enjoy privilege. Because the Islamic creed cuts through all of that. That's something we need to recognize. Um, if we have a problem with the binaries around race or gender or, or class, um, then you need something transcendent that can rise above all of that and to which all of those all of those individuals can ascribe to and what can do this except the islamic creed what can offer this except the islamic creed 
what can be so transcendent and so correct um, except the Islamic creed? We need to genuinely understand this point. Our methods is that our change, the change that and the struggle that we're going to pursue is going to be organic. It's going to be through conviction alone. There is no material benefit. It's not born out of resentment. It's not reactionary in nature. It's because of a deep conviction in the correctness of what we're doing. A deep conviction in our need for this and the need of all of humanity for it. Um, and we 100% carry the savior complex as Muslims because of our conviction in the correctness of Islam. And we say this most respectfully to oppressed uh, minorities around the world. We say this very respectfully and very sensitively that whilst we are not seeking to undermine what you're experiencing and what you're feeling, we implore you to look at the world differently and adopt an alternative paradigm that will confront not just particular scourges but all scourges. The other aspect to our method, of course, is that the transfer of power within society will happen naturally. And that is the example of the Prophet ﷺ with the concept of Nusra. That you create the change, build a support base, engage society, win public opinion to your side, and that includes those who have existing power, and we saw the transference of that power naturally to the Prophet and the Muslims. Meaning with minimal disruption, minimal bloodshed. Now if forces of oppression take a different response and take a different approach, um, then they alone are responsible for that. If they want to oppose public opinion, oppose the natural transition of power, then the blood's on them. But the change for us has to be organic, has to be fruit conviction, and has to happen naturally. And that was the example of the Prophet ﷺ. So in that sense, you know, our fight will be an example. The method in which we engage in this fight will be an example. And our success will be an example for all oppressed people. You know, we're not campaigning for change in the Muslim world for our sake alone. We realize that the world is suffering. Everyone is crying. Everyone is bleeding um, because of the world led um, by capitalist states, by colonial states. So now success will be that we were successful in building a new um, transcendent creed amongst the people and getting them to attach themselves to it um, by developing new relationships amongst people to look at themselves differently and the relationships among themselves differently to construct new loyalties on the basis of that new creed um, and practically to see the redistribution of wealth, the redistribution of power and the remodeling of political institutions where we see it from the Islamic point of view the centralization of authority but also the decentralization of of life or administration resulting in the construction of genuinely organic more self-reliant communities you know one thing we take for granted in in the modern world is the central role of statehood in every aspect of our life but it doesn't have to be this way 
and of course the, the centrality of statehood um, intimately uh, controlling every aspect of our life is one of the, the primary means by which um, systems of oppression are consistently replicated and reproduced um, every single day. And it's about rebalancing that power um, and the relationship between the ruler and the ruled that Islam and Islam alone can provide. Such was the example of the Prophet ﷺ. And this needs to be said very clearly. When you look at the companions, may Allah be pleased with them all. And this is something we need to be very clear about. They came from all manner of background. You had rich and poor, black and white, uh, male, female, young and old, um, people with extended families, people with no extended family, um, people who were free, people who were slaves. This is not um, you know, a fact that can be simplistically or conveniently overlooked. What the Prophet ﷺ brought to the people of Mecca um, was so powerful, so transcendent, that it forced all of them to look at themselves differently, um, to look at each other differently, um, to, to question and ultimately confront old loyalties, to build new loyalties, um, to challenge the prevailing systems of their day, um, and to work to establish alternative systems, um, which we witnessed in Medina. That's not a small statement. You know, many times... Um, you know, efforts to remove particular instances of oppression will result in the formation of new forms of oppression. It's like we solve one problem and we create 10 more in the process. It's the reality of the human functioning. If it's less to, left to us, um, despite our best intentions, then ultimately as human beings who are limited and dependent um, who are subject to their environment, have their inherent biases, are a product of their prevailing conditions, are merely going to replicate that. Um, and the only difference is that the forms of oppression are going to change, but oppression itself will remain. And that's why the framing of this discussion needs to radically alter um, to, to determine that the, the, the primary issue that needs to be confronted is not racism in and of itself um, but the fact that racism today is an example one of many examples of the product of uh, the human uh, condition human beings meaning control determining our morality and determining um, or demanding our, our loyalty um, and defining for us good and bad, right and wrong and we need to view it in this way so the fact that the companions came from all manner of background um, and it broke family ties, political ties, historical ties and replaced it with something better um, needs to be understood for the majesty that it is. A wonderful example of that, of course, is at the time of Umar um, Anhu, when he was the Khalif and expeditions were sent to Egypt to open that part of the world led by Amr ibn As, but one of the commanders at the time who was sent to speak to the leader of Egypt at that time um, was Ubadah ibn Samat. And Ubadah, may Allah be pleased with him, was a black man. 
um, and he was asked to lead the Muslims um, in their engagement with uh, the political leadership of Egypt at that time. And the leader of Egypt, Maqawqis, at the time refused to even engage him because of the simple fact he was black. And he insisted that uh, the Muslims send someone else on their behalf. And of course the Muslims refused. Um, and there's a long conversation that happened between um, between Ubadah uh, at the time and, the, and Maqawqis at the time. Um, but there's a very important segment of this conversation that after Ubadah, may Allah be pleased with him, extolled the virtues of Islam, explained the purpose of their arrival um, and the profoundness of that, uh, Maqawqis was stunned by what he heard. And he made this statement, which is recorded in history and will, will stay with us forever, where he said, um, I am afraid of your face, meaning his blackness and what that, um, what that means to him. I'm afraid of your face, but I'm more afraid by the message you delivered, meaning Islam. And he continued, as, as the narration goes, that he was convinced, Maqawqis was convinced because of this message, these people, these Muslims will conquer the world. But the statement here is that there's a recognition that despite Al-Badr being black, uh, the Muslims did not make an issue of this and in fact supported uh, and extended their undying loyalty to him because he was appointed for this purpose. And they demonstrated for their action the virtue, the virtue, virtue of Islam in dealing with the differences that have become um, entrenched and institutionalized in the modern age. We need to pursue this, um, you know, the challenges of racism, uh, support the victims of racism as we would support victims and, and, and engage in, and challenge all forms of oppression. But we do so with an Islamic lens. And we offer this message to all, um, all people of the world. And importantly, the ones being oppressed and the ones doing the oppression. There are many people that came to the Prophet ﷺ that sought to kill him. And they embraced Islam after they heard what it represents. There are many people that used to punish the Muslims that ultimately became Muslims themselves. There are people who used to fight the Muslims in the battles that they themselves became Muslims. There were those who were wealthy who gave up their wealth. Those who were powerful, they gave up their power. Those who were oppressive, that gave up their oppression. Only Islam can do that. Only the Islamic creed can do that. And that's a reminder to us Muslims to take our responsibility seriously in conveying the Islamic call, in championing the Islamic cause. Um, but importantly, not to fantasize about this in a utopian sense. What the Islam brought, what the Prophet brought, became institutionalized in Medina. It became systemized. And through that, uh, the beauty and the justice of Islam was witnessed, was lived, was experienced, was tasted, and of course was offered to the rest of humanity. Um, saying Islam can do this and Islam will do this, in the absence of that conversation about the systemization of Islam will do an injustice and a disservice to what we're actually trying to convey. And so if we're serious about confronting the scourge of racism, which we need to be, 
if we're serious about overturning systems of oppression, which we must be, um, then we need to recognize that this can only happen by working to establish the, the very systems that the Prophet wasallam established in Medina and through that practically um, brought about the changes that were so desperately needed in those societies. That's a message for all of us. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, make us and honor us with the ability to carry this message and the champion this cause in the way that it so deserves. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala soothe the hearts and strengthen the footing of all oppressed people. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the day sooner rather than later where we have the ability to overturn these matters practically. Jazakum Allah khairan. والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته